So we're in, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We started this study back in the fall. And we'll continue this on for, for a good long while. So Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 will be our text today. And I will read that for us. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no roots, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Help us listen. Help whatever may be distracting us right now in our home life or work life or just generally something that happened this morning or or is happening right now in our own hearts. Help that not to be a distraction to us. Help us to be able to hear your words today, and that we would leave this place um, with seed rooted deeply in our hearts of the gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in, in our study of the, of the gospel of Mark, we've, we've kind of framed the entire study around the question, who is Jesus? So, but, but you can also ask other questions concerning the text and, and still get an answer to this question of who is Jesus because we have to begin to ask our, ourselves a couple of questions too. Like, who am I in relation to this Jesus? Or, or where am I in relation to this Jesus? Where am I on this, this kind of spiritual journey or pilgrimage? 
Is, is Jesus just some made-up fairy tale from childhood? Just to kind of make me feel better about, about things. Uh, is he just some outside entity that I run to uh, occasionally uh, on, on Easter and Christmas and, and maybe when things get bad? Or is he everything to you? Well, this is what our parable is addressing today. Who are you in relation to the kingdom of God? Are you an insider or are you an outsider? And you'll notice in the text, uh, if you haven't already, that the outsiders take up a lot of space in these verses. Most of the space. So out of the three different types of soil mentioned, three are outsiders, leaving the insiders as a small minority, So, which is typical of, of Jesus' description of the kingdom. And you'll see this in other parables as we go along in chapter 4. Jesus' description of his kingdom is that it's small, small as a mustard seed, seemingly insignificant, but growing steadily. So in order to communicate truth like this to, to, to his followers, Jesus uses parables. So about one-third of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels are parables. So a lot. So even if you're unfamiliar with parables, you, you've probably, there's a good chance that you've probably heard the language of parables. So you may have heard things like the Good Samaritan. I know locally there's like a landscaping company in town that's called the Good Samaritan which I thought was like a free service for a while, but no, they're not. Um, I don't know how that messes the definition up of Good Samaritan. But, uh, or, or the prodigal son. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you've had a prodigal son. Maybe you were a prodigal son. Somebody called me a prodigal son yesterday. I don't know why. But you may have heard this type of, of language before. And this is the language from Jesus' parables. So a simple definition of a parable is this. It's a story taken from real life or, or a real life situation from which a moral or spiritual truth is drawn. That's what a parable is. And I would say that Jesus uses parables more often than not, not, to, not, not as like a, a simple kind of, kind of a children's story type of meth, message to kind of dumb things down from pe- for people, but Jesus was using parables to communicate deep truth. I mean, Jesus says here that he asks the question, do you not understand these parables? How are you you going to understand anything if you can't understand these parables? So we'll see that in our text this morning. Now, first I want us to look, uh, I'm going to kind of not go in order here uh, of the text. Since it's a parable, I I think we have some liberty there. But I'm going to start in the middle of this text. I'm going to start with verses 10 through 12 where Jesus gives us the purpose of the parables. So we'll be looking at a parable today, and then Hunter's going to be preaching for us next week, and he's going to be looking at three other parables next week. So Jesus lays out before us, what is the purpose of these parables? And I think that kind of helps round out this definition of parables through Jesus' explanation. And then we'll take uh, the parable and the explanation of the parable in one breath after these first few verses. So the purpose of parables, look at verses 10 through 12 again. Jesus is saying, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. 
But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So verse 10, the disciples are asking Jesus about parables. Now, what specifically they ask, Mark doesn't tell us, but I'm sure it, had, it was a lot of the questions that you and I would ask of someone who just walked around telling stories, uh, these types of stories all the time. Like, what are they intended for? Jesus, wh- why do you speak like this? Why, why, do you, why don't you just speak plainly? Why are you beating around the bush here? Why are you kind of, it looks like you're trying to be secretive and to cover things up. What does all of this mean? Are probably some of the questions the disciples were asking. And for the answer to this question, we have to understand the parable that Jesus is teaching here in, in, these, first, in these 20 verses of, of chapter 4 against the backdrop of the unbelief found in chapter 3 of this chapter. So if you remember, if you've been with us for a while and you've been walking through Mark with us, you, if you remember in chapter 3, verse 6, after Jesus has, has proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, he's forgiving sin, he's healing all sorts of diseases, Jesus' opponents, also the religious leaders, were seeking a way to destroy him. So they, they are bent on murdering Jesus. They just have to figure out how they can do it in a strategic way. And then you have chapter 3, verse 22, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where Jesus' opponents declared his power to be demonic, that he was actually doing the work of Satan. So now in chapter 4, in verses 11 through 12, Jesus is making a sharp distinction concerning the crowd that is following him. So you have to understand that when Jesus calls his followers his followers, not all of those people, these people were literally following him. Like, when he moved from a location, they followed him physically, okay? So the, this crowd that followed Jesus was, was filled with people who both believed in Jesus and those who did not. So you had the religious leaders who were there that were completely against Jesus and who were conniving in a certain way to kill him. They were also following him as well. They were surrounding him. They were listening to his teaching to try to pick things out to to prove that he was wrong. So what Jesus does in 11 and 12 here is he makes a distinction between his disciples, so those whom the kingdom has been revealed, and the unbelieving multitude, those whom the truth is concealed. So Jesus is saying again, you are either inside my kingdom or you are outside my kingdom. So just like we looked at last week in the verses uh, right there at the end of, of chapter 3, you are either part of Jesus' family, or you are not. There's no in-between. There's no lukewarmness. There's no kind of middle ground that you can hold. Jesus says you are either in or you're out. So in those inside the kingdom... They understand that the mystery of the kingdom is found in Jesus. Even if they don't fully understand it, they know that that this mystery of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in his parables, that Jesus has something to do with it, and we need to stick close to Jesus. They understand that that the kingdom has begun to infiltrate in Jesus' person and work the reality of humanity. 
Something is shifting here. And they recognize that. So they recognize that when Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning I am here, therefore the kingdom is here, repent and believe the gospel. But for those outside the kingdom, this is what Jesus says, everything is in parables. Everything is in parables. So the key word there is everything. To those on the outside, Jesus is saying, everything concerning himself, not just just what's actually in the parables, but everything that he is doing, everything that he is saying is in parables to them. They don't understand. It's completely unclear to them. Everything concerning Jesus doesn't quite make sense. It's a conundrum. To those whose eyes are blinded to the truth and those whose ears are deaf, deaf, they see nothing good about Jesus. Everything about Jesus is a disturbing enigma. It's just unclear. And they don't get anything about who Jesus is or what he is doing. So, So Jesus isn't purposefully trying to confuse them. Or or he's not purposely trying to to throw them off the scent of the kingdom. That's not Jesus' intent. That would contradict the Scriptures. The Scripture says that God desires all to be saved. Jesus isn't doing this. This is why Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 right here. This is what, what Terry read for us earlier. They see, but they don't perceive. They, they hear, but they don't understand. So they're seeing everything everyone else is seeing. They're hearing uh, everything that everyone else is hearing, but they don't perceive it and they don't understand it. This is how the religious leaders could draw a conclusion like they did in chapter 3 to say he's possessed by the devil. He's doing the work of a demon. They have excluded themselves from the kingdom in their unbelief. This reminded me of what Paul says later to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly, or the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, those who are lost, those who are outside the kingdom. But to us who are being saved, to us who are understanding the mystery of the kingdom, it's the power of God. It's, it's, it's unexplainable. I don't understand it completely, but I know it's not something in and of myself. It's the power of God. So our neighbors believe the cross foolish because they don't yet have the perception or understanding that only faith in Christ, the grace of God, can give them. So essentially, Jesus is saying... Before I explain this parable to you, I want you to hear the distinction. There are many outside my kingdom, but there are only some who are inside my kingdom. So this is why Jesus says in verse 3, listen. And then in verse 9, again, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He is saying, listen, listen. Listen, listen to this. 
This is important. Don't let it just kind of fly over your head. Because you may be one here today that has been deceived into thinking you are a believer in Christ, that you are inside the kingdom, and you're not. To listen to Jesus' words to you. Now, there's, there's a great benefit uh, this morning in running yourself through the filter of these four heart conditions. And I think I want to encourage all of us to do that this morning. So don't, don't sit back casually and just start thinking of other people, as, as, as I have done the entire week. Uh, the entire week, thinking of the other people. But, but to run, run yourself through these, this filter, because the Scripture tells us to do so. Paul tells Timothy, uh, keep a close watch on yourself. At other places, it, it tells us uh, uh, continually to guard your heart, to keep a close watch on your heart. So you who have ears today, hear the word of God to you. Now, verses 1 through 8 of Jesus' parable uh, may be an image that, that, is, that is hard for you and I to picture, um, it's, this, Jesus is speaking to a, a, an agrarian culture here, a farming uh, community, so we, we don't hear this language often. But all you have to do is really just to picture this one uh, sower simply walking up and down their land, reaching into their, into their bag of seeds, and just kind of spreading it out as they walk along. There's, really, there's no strategy to it. He just walks in a line up and down his, his land, and the seed lands where it is. He knows that some of it's not going to take. Some of it's just going to be wasted. Some of it is going to go in. It's going to produce a crop for him and his family to provide for them. And this is the image that Jesus conjures up for his hearers. They would have been very familiar with the scene that he lays before them. Some of them probably were sowers. And through this simple story, this simple parable, Jesus goes on to describe some really deep and hard truths. These four conditions of the heart that that, that help clarify who's outside the kingdom and who's inside the kingdom of God. So I just want to take all four of those and look at those very quickly uh, this morning. The first is the hard heart, found in verse 4 and in verse 15. So this type of soil represents, represents a hardness of heart of, of which there are, are many today as there were during Jesus' time. This isn't something that has gone away over time. Those who, who sit in pews or in, or in chairs like these uh, every Sunday, but they're preoccupied with the things of this world. And while they hear the word it falls flatly along the hard surface of their heart. And Jesus says, Satan quickly, immediately, snatches away any truth before any real and lasting impact is made on them. So think about soil along a path. Maybe you go walking at the Augusta Canal and you, you walk across that and you can, you can kind of see that the, the, the dirt is packed down tight, like, almost like concrete. So after it's, it's continually been walked over and run over and driven over, it just continually gets packed down over and over again, and nothing that you could do on your own would allow you to grow anything out of that soil. Nothing's going to be produced out of that at all. Well, this is the same thing that can be said about 
our hearts. It has been driven over and walked upon by the sin that is in our life over and over and over again. So much so that sin packs it down to the point that nothing can grow on it. Nothing is going to penetrate it. And Satan has an easy time snatching any truth that falls upon it. So just understand this. Satan is God's enemy and your enemy. It doesn't matter if you believe in God, that you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, or if you are just a total pagan and you have no intentions of believing. Satan hates you just as much as he hates me. He wants, he wants you to have nothing to do with the gospel. And he will do anything in his power to stop it. Anything. Small or great. So this, think about it this way. Jesus illustrates Satan's work as birds coming and snatching the seed away. So he doesn't tell us what kind of birds they are. It's, it's really irrelevant to, to the conversation. But, but there are many different types of birds that we have in our lives that could do this. So it might be something like this. It might be something that I say today, or it may be the tone that I take, or it may be the way that I'm dressed, or it may be the way the musicians led us in music. You you may not have liked that song. It may be that you don't like standing up and sitting down as much as we do. It may be something as small as that, that will snatch away the truth. Or maybe it's a distraction that you're thinking about at, at work that you have to accomplish tomorrow or something at school that's coming, coming up. Or maybe it's just the continual sin that you don't just stumble into accidentally but that you enjoy committing. All of these devices Satan will use to devour you. C.S. Lewis, if if all else fails, I think this is the third week in a row I've quoted C.S. Lewis. If all else fails, quote C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, brilliantly illustrates this in his book, um, The Screwtape Letters, which is just a fictional uh, dialogue between two demons. And C.S. Lewis is such a wonderful writer that when you begin to read him, it's almost like he had this dialogue with these demons himself. It just seems so real and so accurate. But it's this dialogue between two demons. One is named Screwtape, and one is named Wormwood. So Wormwood being the trainee under his uncle Screwtape and and how to keep human beings from their mortal enemy, the demon's mortal enemy, the God of the universe. So over and over again, through their back and forth, they're writing letters back and forth and reporting about their work, uh, Screwtape discourages Wormwood to use extravagant tactics to draw people away from the gospel. Instead, he encourages them to use the little things of life to pull people away from the gospel. I just want to read a small portion of that and their interaction. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. And one of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. When he goes inside the church, 
He sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy with neither of them under, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew he, and looks around, he sees just the selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, some of you, or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. And that's the way the Satan works in a very subtle, quiet way to snatch the truth away from you. So the second heart is a shallow heart found in verses 5 and 6 and 16 through 17. I'm not going to read back through those verses, but the shallow heart. So we've all uh, seen a plant sprouting from between two, between two rocks. You're, you're going to start seeing that more and more as spring comes upon us here in Augusta. And we, we know how easily it is to, to pluck that uh, particular weed or flower or plant out of those rocks because the roots aren't deep. And so it is easily, effortless. We, we, can, we can just pluck it out between those two rocks. Well, the rocky soil here has slightly more depth than the hard soil. We're not so much worried about birds coming along or or, or Satan coming along and snatching these seeds of truth away. And that's what makes those with a shallow heart tricky. These are the ones who have quick growth and excitement, uh, who say the right things, they, they do the right things, they have just enough Bible knowledge to kind of get by, and they may sit next to you every single Sunday in these chairs. But all of it, Jesus says, is only a temporary joy. I, I get good experience in this. I grew up in a church that capitalized on temporary joy, uh, yearly revival meetings to kind of hype the crowds up, and, and yearly like high-energy youth camps and, and meetings that were, that were meant to get you hyped and to get this temporary joy at a level that you could experience and touch and taste and rely upon for just a short moment. And I walked around as a, an unbeliever for many years because of this temporary joy. And I can tell you, most of my friends from that time have either rejected the gospel become disillusioned with the church, or have never stopped trying to find that temporary joy that they once experienced. And they just wander around from church to church trying to find it. So don't be fooled by temporary joy in yourself or in others. Jesus says this is not a deep faith because it's not a faith that will last. So verse, t- verse 17 tells us this joy, uh, it, it will not last because it cannot stand against what is going to come up against it. So Jesus tells us that as Christians, it's not a bed of roses. It's not, it's not every day is a Friday. That we will 
experience persecution. We will experience tribulation. We will suffer. And some of it will come along because we are Christians. That we wouldn't otherwise suffer if we weren't. Is the faith that you are currently holding on to able to withstand that? Because if you are only trusting in God because things are currently on the up and up for you, because you're, you're, right now everything's going uh, smoothly in your job and your, your kids are, are doing well and, and things seem to be going okay in, in your marriage or with your friends set or, or, or wherever, if, if you are only trusting in God because all of those things are going well, you probably don't have true faith. Because true Christianity is a faith that stands up to everything, good or bad. And it always has. I mean, Jesus, our Savior, is a perfect example of that. Everything Jesus went up against is the things that we also experience. And Jesus defeated them all. Well, notice in verse 18 why the persecution and tribulation come. On account of the word. On account of the word of God. So these things happen to you not because of who you are, but because of what you say you believe. Well, I'm a Christian. And so immediately you begin to experience some persecution from from different people that you at one point in time uh, got along with would even call them friends and family. And those with the shallow heart say, this is not what I signed up for. I did not sign up for this type of hardship. I did not sign up for this type of persecution. And Jesus says, just as quickly as they received the word with joy, they fall away. Because they have no root in themselves. It's a shallow Root and have merely been living off the fumes of emotionalism. So the question is not, can you personally stand against tribulation and persecution? Maybe you could gird yourself up and kind of endure some of that. The question is, can your faith, can what you believe concerning the gospel stand against it? Are your roots deep enough to withstand the hurricane force winds that will come on account of the word? Or will you topple at the slightest breeze? The late pastor of uh, 10th Pres in Philadelphia, his name was James Montgomery Boyce, he said this, he said, many in our churches today fit this description. Their shallow hearts are attached to a church where much is happening They hear the word preached and seem to fit in, but when hardships arise, job loss, conflict with other Christians, suffering, etc., they immediately fall away because they were never really Christians to begin with. So sadly, these are the ones who will stand before Christ one day and be surprised when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So the third heart is the strangled heart, found in verse 7 and 18 through 19. 
So here's, here's seed that goes a little deeper than the last two and even experiences some significant growth. Yet it is in a constricting growth environment, you could say. A, a growth environment that is, that is surrounded by these thorns of worldly cares and de- the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. And, and while this, this stalk might grow up, It's fruitless. There's no point in it. And this, I would say, is the most common in our churches today in the 21st century. Because because they're they're the hardest to recognize. And and you may be one that's deceived by this. This may be who you are because, because we can look at that and go, well, it's growing. The weed is growing up. You can see it. I mean, look, there is evidence there. It is, it is growing. It is moving. They are saying the right things. They're doing the right things. But it's not true growth, Jesus says, because there's no fruit on the vine. So let's look at this, the, the causes of this tragedy. One is, uh, Jesus says, it's the cares of the world. So those, those everyday things that if we don't have them or we lack them, it will send us into a tailspin. So the worry and the anxiety of of not having those things or lacking those things of the world and caring so much about those things of the world chokes us out and we forget the promises of the word. So maybe you're a person who walks around saying, what's going to happen to my kids? What if I lose my job? What if my spouse dies? What's going to happen to me then? What, what if I never get married? What if I, what if I get deployed or, or my husband or wife gets deployed? What am I going to do? What if I'm not in the right vocation or I'm not making the right choices? And instead of trusting the God who loves you and the word that you have heard over and over again, you immediately throw it all of aside. All of it aside is rubbish. It's not applicable. It's not helpful. The second thing is the deceitfulness of riches. And this is just the, the false idea that your money can save you. And many of you are very good with Money. You are proud graduates of Financial Peace University. Dave Ramsey is your daddy. And in that sense, and in that sense, uh, you, you, you start to develop this, this, this sense of superiority because you've checked all the boxes, you've reached all the milestones, and somehow you believe yourself to be better. And even worse, somehow you believe yourself to be safe. And not just from financial calamity, but from anything. You believe that your bank account saves you. Now, there's nothing wrong with being wise with your money. Continue to be wise with your money. Be generous to Christ the King. There's nothing wrong with that until you allow it to be your God. And the way that you can tell that money or riches have become your God is that's all that you can think about. That's all that you want to talk about. 
It's where your, your trust goes. When things start to get a little rocky in life, you can always look to your bank account. Everything's good there. Or, or when worries arrive, uh, it's, 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 it's always centered around your riches, your wealth. And Jesus spoke very directly to people who trusted in their riches in the Gospels. Over and over again it came up. If you remember the story of the rich young ruler, that Jesus, uh, he knows the word of God well. Jesus says to him, man, you know the Bible. And he says, one thing that you lack, go and sell everything and give it to the poor. And what does it say? He walks away sorrowful. He's sad because he cannot do it. He cannot give away his God. Matthew 19, Jesus says, It's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And let me just say, if you're going, I'm not rich, Kevin. You're an American. You're pretty wealthy. You are. So, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6 goes on to explain why it's so hard to enter the kingdom. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. You have no need for God, you think. I'm already comfortable. I'm already safe. So the question for you would be, if for some reason you lost everything tomorrow, would it crush you? Would your faith crumble? Would you just curse God and die? Some have done that. Think about the story of Job. That's where I'm at in my, um, in my Bible reading plan. You may be there too. Job, you could say, <clears throat> at his time in life, was one of the richest men in the world. He had everything. Every comfort he had, he was married, he had kids, he had all the money you could ever ask for, he had everything that money could buy, he had friends around him, he was respected in the community, he had power, everything that we kind of pine for in life. Job had it, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone, everything. Children die, riches go away, health goes away. Friends are, cur- are cursing him. His wife is cursing him. Curse God and die. So if your answer to this question is crush me, you need to consider if you truly have faith like Job did. Because when all of this happens to Job, the Bible says he never, he never sinned against God, but worshipped him. So if you answer that question as yes, it would crush me, my faith would evaporate. You need to consider if you truly believe the gospel of the Bible. Well, the third is the desire for other things, So, which is just kind of this miscellaneous category, which is simply you just want something else other than the kingdom of God. Let's just be honest. Jesus' ways are too restrictive. His commands are too demanding. The cross is too heavy. The kingdom of this world is so appealing to me. It has so much to offer. It's, it's, it's attractive. It's fun. 
that outweighs everything else in comparison, even eternity with Jesus. And so instead, instead of moving toward the kingdom of God in belief, you're moving away from the kingdom of God and towards the kingdom of the world in unbelief. So as we transition to this final heart condition, let me point out one of the common patterns, there's a lot of patterns here, but one of the common patterns of the three we just looked at, just in case you missed it. They all heard God's word. None of them were exempt from hearing God's word. They all heard it, yet all still remain outside the kingdom. And none of them are closer than the other. This isn't some like step process that you kind of make, make in your life. None of them are any closer to the kingdom than the other. So don't be deceived in thinking that because you, you heard the word of God today proclaimed over you, that somehow automatically you are in the kingdom of God. Because you checked the box of going to a worship gathering uh, today, you're, you're now in God's graces, good graces somehow. That's not how Christianity works. So just like we saw last week where, where Jesus makes a clear distinction right in front of his family, in front of, in front of the, the, the crowds that were following him, makes this clear distinction about who is actually in the family of God. And Jesus says, it's not those who are blood-related to me. Now, they have access to being in my family, but just because they're related to me does not make them any closer than those who are not. Jesus says, it's those who do the will of God. So he makes clear now who is actually in the kingdom in his description of those with an open heart, which is this fourth heart condition found in verse 8 and verse 20 of the parable. So the seed doesn't just land on these, uh, these uh, you know, hard, hard spots and these rocky spots and these thorny spots. The seed does actually land on good soil as well. And it does something that the other three seeds don't do. It goes deep. Its, its environment is conducive to its growth and it thrives. So like I said, all four of these hearts now have heard the word of the kingdom. All four of them have heard it. They're sitting under the same message as being proclaimed to them. But the key is the open heart doesn't stop at hearing, Jesus says. If you notice that in verse 20, Jesus says, they hear the word of God, they accept it, and they bear fruit. They hear it, they accept it, and they do the work of the kingdom, is what Jesus says. So they don't just accept it as just another truism in the culture or another road to God, but they accept it as the word of life, truth. It's not something that is only true and exciting for a moment, but it is true and exciting for all of life. So that even in the midst of sorrow and, and suffering and persecution and depression and anxiety, the gospel is still true. That while living in the world, they're not of the world. They don't see money as a God, but as a means in which to bless others. 
They don't see suffering and persecution as God not loving them, but as an opportunity to see Christ more clearly and to trust him more fully. Now, the devil is not going to step back from these people. The devil is going to continue to try to wreak havoc on these, and, but he will be constantly frustrated because the seeds are deeply embedded. Because they are in an environment where these seeds can not only grow, but flourish and bear fruit. So this is kind of what it looks like. This is one who is constantly being reminded of the truth of the kingdom because they're putting themselves before the king's words every day in the scriptures. Not just on Sunday. They, they talk to the king in prayer because they have access to his throne through Christ. And so they can come to the throne of grace in confidence and know that the king will bend his ear to hear them and answer them. They are doing as Jesus commands, where Jesus says in Matthew, don't be anxious about the world. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, but seek first the kingdom. Because it's there that everything begins to make sense. That that true reality begins to to become clear to you and everything begins to to straighten out, even our suffering. This is one who has an open heart who puts themselves around other citizens of the kingdom consistently by being involved in a local church. Others who are seeking first the kingdom that can remind them of the gospel, that can uh, sharpen them in the gospel, that can encourage them in the gospel, that can even rebuke them in the gospel. And you receive it with joy. And call them back to the kingdom when suffering and persecution and doubt arises. And these are the ones who look for open doors, for opportunities to, to demonstrate and to tell others about the kingdom of God. So let me just ask, is your heart open today? Are are you receptive to God's truth today? You may may find yourself outside of God's kingdom today. And And if you are, I want you to hear the words of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Because I, I want to read these words because you may think, well, if I, I, I think I might have a hard heart. How, how am I ever going to come to faith in Christ? How is it ever going to happen? How am I ever going to have these seeds uh, of the gospel implanted deeply in my heart where Satan cannot steal them? Hear Ezekiel's words. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So you may ask, Who then is Jesus? 
And Ezekiel tells us he is the only one who can do this. He is the only one who can make your hard heart soft again. So come to Christ and allow him to give you a heart that will receive the gospel. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Even, even, when, it, even when it hits us really hard, even when it makes us call our own faith into question, we know that you are a good God who loves us, and you mean no harm to us. You just want us to grow in the gospel. You want us to, to, to grow even more deeply in love with Jesus. And I pray that uh, even as there may be all four of these heart conditions present, and I'm sure there are, that we would be encouraged by uh, your words through Ezekiel, that you will get, take this heart of stone away from us, that you will give us a heart of flesh, that you will give us a, an open heart that can receive the gospel over and over again until the end of days. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.